Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Here in the studio, I have one of my dearest and longstanding friends and colleagues, Dr. Fisher Humphreys. Fisher, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you, Dr. George. Now, we're going to talk today about a controversial topic, a very important ethical issue that's been debated really for many, many centuries, and that is the viability, the morality of the death penalty, capital punishment. But before we get to that issue, I wonder if you would just say a little bit about your own background. We may have some Beeson podcast listeners who don't know you as well as we do here at Beeson. I'd like them to know a little bit about your own background and kind of how we established a connection years ago. My wife, Caroline, and I have just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. Um, We're the parents of two children, both married. Um, Our son and his wife have three little girls. That's our immediate family. My principal ministry has been teaching, though I have served a number of churches as pastor and in other roles. Um, And I spent about half my career at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and the other half here at Beeson Divinity School. And my subject area was uh, Christian theology. And you've written so many books. Uh, I don't dare begin to go through the list, but why don't you tell us two or three of your books that you think folks would like to know about? I wrote a survey of Christian theology called Thinking About God. I wrote a book about biblical images for Christian living, things like Christians are disciples, they are priests, they are children of God, and so forth. And one of your books I would mention is a book called I Have Called You Friends. It's about the theme of friendship in the Bible. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking to my friend, Fisher Humphreys, I want to shift to the topic for today. And thank you for agreeing to talk to us about it. And that is capital punishment. I thought we might start, Fisher, by you just giving us um, a survey of the world and capital punishment. Uh, What is happening in this front around the world here in the United States, but abroad as well? The short story is that the trend is definitely away from capital punishment worldwide. Um, Capital punishment is opposed by the United Nations, and the vast majority of member states do not, in fact, conduct capital punishment. Here in the United States, the same thing is true. We are giving out about a third as many death penalty sentences in the United States now as we were 15 years ago. We are executing about a third as many people per year in the United States now as we were 25 years ago. So the trend is definitely away from it. Unfortunately, it is still very much with us. Uh, The principal nation doing executions today is China, and nobody knows the exact number, at least nobody outside of China does. It's in the hundreds and possibly in the thousands. The next nation is, the next ones are Iraq and Iran, and then the United States. So we're not in ideal, what you call democratic company here with these other states. In North America and Europe, the only two countries with the death penalty are Belarus and the United States. Here in the United States, uh, the trend away from the death penalty is evident also in the number of states that have it. There have been three states in the last three years moving away from it. This year, Maryland moved away. Uh, Altogether now, there are 32 states with the death penalty, plus the federal government, including the military, and 18 states and the District of Columbia that do not have it. So the, the death penalty is not only a matter of state law, but also federal law. 
And that's part of the complication for the United States. As you know, the way things work here is any powers not explicitly given to the federal government devolve over to the states. And so the states, one at a time, have to make decisions about this. And we have kept it for the federal government on death row today. We have about a million and a half people in prison today for convicted of crimes. We have about 750,000 more people in the United States in jails and other detention centers awaiting trial or they're in on misdemeanors, something like that. We have 3,100 people on death row in the United States, and about about 60 of these are on federal death row. The largest state by far is California with more than 700 people, and then Florida is next with about 400, Texas with about 300, Alabama's after that with about 200 on death row. California sort of surprises me a little bit because, you know, the image is a very, very liberal political state, and yet uh, so many people on, on a death row there. Yes. California, probably we've, we've got better studies of what's happening in California than anywhere else. A really major study of the cost of the death penalty in California a year or two ago showed that California had spent astonishingly about $4 billion to maintain its death row. And it executed no more than 13 people since the reinstatement. We didn't have the death penalty in this country for a while, but in 1976 it came back, and California has executed 13 people, and it cost them about $4 billion to do that. You would think they would be opposed to it, but last year they had a, a referendum and very narrowly kept the death penalty a referendum to get rid of it. So they, they still have it in California. You just said something I think that a lot of our folks will not have known, and that is that there was no death penalty in the United States for a period of time, and then it was reintroduced. Was this through a Supreme Court decision? It was. Decisions mostly having to do with cruel and unusual punishment, but other other technical matters as well. Basically, what the court had done in the uh, 60s, late 60s, was to say that certain laws in certain states were unconstitutional, as I say, largely over cruel and inhumane forms of punishment, which is outlawed by the Constitution. And so states had to rewrite their uh, death penalty laws. Florida was fast. They did it before the year was out. Other states followed. A group called the American Law Institute drew up a kind of model law for states to follow that would pass constitutional muster. And uh, states adopted that law um, or, or something like it, used it as a pattern, and, and got they got laws back on the on the books that the Supreme Court has upheld. Now, Fisher, you are a Christian, and you are a Christian theologian. So I'd like for us to talk a little bit about um, that whole question of how and why a Christian should be concerned about uh, capital punishment, and in particular, you yourself. And and we might begin, because you've discussed this with many people over a long period of time, and we know that this is uh, an issue much debated in the Christian tradition uh, among theologians and others. Uh, with some of the arguments that are put forward in favor of capital punishment, and then we'll we'll look at the other side. I think the principal argument that people think of in favor of the death penalty is a is a justice argument, and the idea is simply that justice is understood as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a life for a life, and with that understanding of justice, it's fair to say that some people deserve to die because of they've committed horrific murders. 
uh, think of Timothy McVeigh in the Murrah office building, and they simply say justice would not be done if we did not, in fact, execute a person who does something as horrible as this. I think the argument is a is a valid one if you understand justice to mean an eye for an eye. I think we can treat people in different ways in response to their behavior. If a person does something horrific, well, let's start like this. I think you can treat people worse than their behavior warrants. If there's an innocent person who has committed no murder and we find that person guilty of murder and execute him, then we have done an injustice. If there's a person who committed a horrible murder, like Timothy McVeigh, we find him guilty and we execute him, that is justice in the sense of an eye for an eye and a life for a life. If a person commits a horrible murder and we decline to execute him, we treat him then better than his behavior warrants. And that's called mercy. And mercy is not unjust. It is a just thing, but it is more generous than just. It's better than justice. And so I think that argument is a good one. But it is an argument that says we have a kind of obligation to do justice, that mercy is not permitted to us. Well, we all acknowledge the possibility of mercy, even uh, in the legal system. All the governors have the right to pardon people or to commute their sentences. The president has this right. We simply allow for the possibility of mercy. So the question is, why not, why not show mercy all the time? So that's one argument, the justice argument. A second argument is that executing criminals keeps them from killing anybody else. This is certainly true once they're executed. The average time for an execution takes in the range of 15 years. It varies a lot. And so for 15 years, you haven't ensured that they won't kill anybody else. But we can, we can keep people from killing other people without executing them. We don't have to do that in our situation. There might be situations where we would. An army on the move or something like that might not have an alternative. But uh, we certainly have it in our society today. So, so life imprisonment without parole would be a possibility, as is the uh, a legal option in some states. It, it is a legal option, including our own state of Alabama. A third option, a third uh, argument is that executing people is a deterrent to others to keep others from committing violent acts. You would think it would be, but it doesn't seem to be. There are a couple of things. One is <laughs> the states with with the death penalty often have higher rates of murder and other violent crimes than states without the death penalty and vice versa states without the death penalty often have lower rates of violence and murder that's one thing and then there's just the reality that murder is usually committed as an often committed as an act of passion where people haven't calculated carefully the results of what they're going to do and so they're not saying this as well i might get executed if i do this so i'll stop there was a survey a couple of about five years ago of 500 police chiefs. This was carried out by Lake Research, and these police chiefs, who are people who really ought to know, and they're all almost all in favor of the death penalty. But when they were asked, "Is it a deterrent?" Well over half of them said, "It's not a deterrent." These people committed these crimes out of passion. They weren't considering the results one way or another. So the argument from deterrence of others doesn't seem to me to work very well. Another argument is that the death penalty provides closure for the families of the victims of murder. I think the response on this is it does for some and not for others. There are families who want this. They ask for this. In many states, they are asked, what do you want at the sentencing phase of a, of a capital uh, trial, capital case? They're asked, what, what would you like to see? 
And it certainly does put to rest in their minds the question of whether this person will ever do this to anybody again. The answer was no, we'll execute him. I say him, there's an occasional execution of a woman. Most of this is by males, of course. There are other families who take the opposite view. And they take the view that um, we don't want this to happen. There's even an organization, Murder Victims Families for Reconciliation, with a website in which they say, please, another murder, another, sorry, excuse me, another killing is not going to make up for the loss of my loved one. Please don't do this. Here in Alabama, we had a really tragic case just a few years ago. A man and his wife were having a terrible argument. Um, at the time, one or the other of them was holding their infant daughter. The man killed his wife. The daughter, of course, had no memory of what happened to Mount anything and no memory of her father. She was an infant. But over the years, she grew up and made contact with her father, who was on death row, and um, came to love him. So she was, a, on the one hand, a family member of a murder victim. Her mother had been murdered. On the other hand, a family member of a death row inmate. And she asked that mercy be given to him. She said, I've already lost my mother. Don't take my father away from me. We executed that man. So I think that closure, the closure argument, the first thing to be said is it isn't closure for everybody. The second thing is whether or not we are doing the wisest thing when we say to people, and we do say it, actively say to, to murder victims' families, this will give you closure whether that's really good counsel or not, whether they ought to find closure in other ways that would be more meaningful closure for them than that. I certainly think they, they should. Another argument for the death penalty is that we live in a democracy, and that means a majority rule, and the majority of Americans favor the death penalty, so we ought to have it. Um, a lot turns here on what question you ask. If you ask the question simply, do you favor the death penalty for horrific murderous crimes, Somewhere in the neighborhood of 65% of Americans will tell Gallup or whomever, yes, we favor the death penalty. But if you reframe the question, you get a different answer. For example, here are four penalties that were offered in a poll that was taken in 2010 for these horrific murders. Death, life without the possibility of parole, life with the possibility of parole, and life without the possibility of parole plus the inmate will work to make restitution. Put this way, 33% favored death, 9% uh, life with the possibility of parole, 13% without the possibility of parole, and 39% uh, with, without the possibility of parole, and the inmate works to make restitution. In other words, the short version is, if you give the alternatives of without the possibility of parole and making restitution, only 33% of Americans would choose the death penalty. So there's that. And then there's the fact that leaders are called to lead. Even if it is true that 65% of Americans favor the death penalty, we need leaders who say, um, this is a majority view, but it's not a view that we ought to ideally hold in this country. And this is what happened to us in the civil rights movement, of course, and in the legislation that came out in the 60s against those forms of racial segregation, we had leaders who took an awful lot of Americans to a place where the majority of them didn't want to go. And that was a good thing, I think. So, so I think that argument isn't uh, definitive. Those seem to me to be the principal arguments in support of the death penalty. And I've tried to give reasons why they aren't determinative for me. Yeah, in a few moments, I want to come back to some other arguments that might be put forward from a Christian point of view and see what you think about them. But let me ask you... Uh, 
have you always opposed the death penalty, or if not, how did you come to this position? I can't remember ever favoring the death penalty, thinking, oh, we need this, this is a good thing. I may have when I was really young, but I have no memory of it. I was sort of neutral. It's a small set of people, 3,100 people in this country on death row, most of whom will certainly never be executed. So you're talking about a small set of people, and we've got huge sets of people with terrible terrible needs, mentally ill people or people with AIDS or, from my point of view as a Christian, people with no knowledge of God, no sense of God's grace and love, and so forth. So they're all larger numbers of people who have needs just as great as the as those who are on death row. And so I, I guess I tilted towards paying attention to the larger sets of people and their needs until it gradually dawned on me that it really was seems to have been characteristic of Jesus that he sought out the truly despised and marginalized people and expressed a message of God's grace to them and then said to the religious establishment, you really got the kingdom of God wrong. It isn't just for you who think you're holier. It's, it's for everybody. And, um, and part of his the power of his message and what led to his execution, I think, was uh, that he that he did almost show a preferential option for the outcasts, and as a result, the, the establishment had resentment, and and as we know, he was killed. So my sense was, well, maybe I ought to pay more attention. He was a small set of people, but Jesus paid attention to the poor of the land and so forth, and to the to the lepers and to the Gentiles and others. And so that's how I sort of changed. And then gradually, I met people who opposed it. And then when I thought about it, it seemed to me to make a lot of sense to oppose it. That's how I came to it. Thank you. I, I wanted to mention two arguments that I don't hear used an awful lot, maybe one more than the other. I'll, I'll mention them both, and then maybe you can respond to them. One you sort of alluded to a moment ago, and that is the fact that we know that there are people who are convicted and even executed who are later proved to be not guilty, particularly through DNA evidence or something like that. And uh, how can we ever be 100% sure that the person we are executing is truly guilty? Now, maybe the evidence is just overwhelming. There are a thousand eyewitnesses or whatever. But uh, we are there are these murky cases where the evidence seems to be good going in, but later it crumbles under closer scrutiny. So that's one question. Uh, the other one is, is maybe more from an evangelical, evangelistic even, perspective. And that is uh, when we execute a person – we know uh, that there's no more opportunity in this life for them to respond to the gospel. And if they're not believers in Christ, you know, it's a fast ticket to hell. So shouldn't we be concerned as evangelistic Christians with extending that offer of grace, which I think is related to mercy in the Bible, the grace of, of Jesus Christ to people, even those who may be guilty of horrible crimes? I think there are several strong arguments against the death penalty, and certainly one of them is the possibility of executing an innocent person, at least if we incarcerate someone who's innocent and then discover it. We can release that person, offer that person compensation. Some states require compensation, and I'm talking about money. Mm -hmm. You've been in 10 years, you get a half million dollars or whatever when you come out. Um, obviously, we lose that option when we execute, so that's serious. In my mind, Dr. George, there is no question but what we have executed innocent people. And I would commend to listeners on this podcast 
an article in the Atlantic that was published in 2012 uh, by a man named Cohen about two men in Texas, both of whom were named Carlos. One of them, Carlos DeLuna, was executed in 1989 for a murder he did not commit. It was committed by another man whose name was Carlos Hernandez. They look very much alike. The article contains photographs of them. Uh, there was almost the number of mistakes in that trial was horrendous, and he simply did not commit the crime. I think we have to just pause and say to ourselves, what exactly is the size of this problem here? A state in this country executed a man for a crime he did not commit. That should never happen. That should never happen. It's bad enough to incarcerate, but it, to to execute is unspeakable. And so it, it simply has happened. The article contains a link to a law journal review. The whole, they gave the whole issue of the law journal to it. And there was an independent investigation by other journalists. This man was innocent. And I think that this happens fairly often. We, we have a number of pieces, over 100 people have been released from death row since 1976 um, who, for reason that they were innocent of the crime for which they've been convicted. So we know that this can happen. We know that at least on some occasions it has happened. It's a very good argument for not doing it. In fact, for many people, it's definitive. An, another, There are other arguments as well. Um, we usually think of this as a kind of liberal uh, conservative issue, but the truth is there are conservative reasons for opposing the death penalty. One of these is that conservatives, generally speaking, favor smaller government, and not giving government excessive powers, well, the power to kill is the ultimate power. So there is a whole organization of conservatives against the death penalty, libertarians who say, we simply must not do this because we know enough about government to know it makes mistakes, bureaucracies make mistakes. We must take the power of the sword away from them. It's not necessary any longer to protect society and so forth. So there is that. And then there's the cost. I mentioned earlier the California study but we have studies for California, for uh, Florida and North Carolina that that aren't as where the costs aren't as high as California, but they're very high. It's in millions of dollars for a death penalty trial, and there's just no need to spend it. Here in Alabama, some of us have tried to find out exactly how much more we're spending to keep about 200 people on death row. Uh, than we would be speaking if we put them out in the general population of prisoners in Alabama. It's in the millions of dollars a year. As far as I'm concerned, it's wasted money. It achieves nothing good uh, for anybody. And then there's the argument from the point of view of Christians. Why would you want to shorten anyone's life, especially the life of a person who is not a Christian? And I, I can't think of a good reason to do it, so I consider that important. Um, in the end, for me, the defining thing is simply Jesus' teaching. I, I confess I get very simplistic about this. Um, Jesus said, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. So we Christians are obligated to do that. The only question then is, we know that that's appropriate personal morality. Because Jesus told us, and we know it's right, and our consciences confirm it, and and we see it in other people's lives, and we know that's moral beauty. We say that's a good thing. The only question to be asked is whether it's good public policy. And I think that everything that's good um, personal morality isn't good public policy. There are things that w we personally want to do, but, but, but the whole we wouldn't ask the whole, I think it's good personal morality not to covet. But I don't think we can require that of society. I don't think we can punish people who are covetous and so forth. My sense is that it's very good public policy, that it would save money, it would save people's lives, it would give, it would show a quality of mercy, that that uh, that would communicate that we're serious about mercy. So when we speak about God's mercy, it would it, it would be more plausible, more credible, what we say about that. So my own sense is that um, 
that that it, that we have very good Christian reasons for the, for me these are definitive. I mean, I really I'd love to save the money, <laughs> lower my taxes, and not pay for death row in Alabama and in the United States. But uh, in the end, what's definitive for me is Jesus' call: "Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful." Let me ask you about two other related issues, also both uh, controversial in some at some level. Uh, I know that you support the sanctity of life. Uh, do you see any connection between um, abortion as it's practiced in this country and the death penalty? You know, Pope Francis has said that he considers abortion to be the death penalty for the unborn. What do you think about that statement? There are similarities. Obviously, you're taking a human life in both cases. The difference is whether or not a fetus at particular ages should be considered a person. There's no question that the people we're executing from death row are persons. No one d- doubts that. And it's my understanding that people who support abortion don't think of a fetus as a person yet. And so they're, because they don't, they don't feel a moral obligation to uh, protect the life of that innocent. So it's, it, there is a difference in debate about, about the subject of the killing, because it's killing in both cases. We know one is a person, the criminal. We have a debate about whether the other one is. It certainly is a convenient thing and a, and a helpful thing to be able to talk about a consistent life ethic. And obviously, Colonel Bernardin did this, and the Catholic Church uses this language uh, regularly. And uh, some evangelicals use it. Jim Wallace at Sojourners uses it. I think that your friend Chuck Colson mm-hmm. used the same mm-hmm. language. And it, it is a good thing, I think, to, to begin with that understanding that we are committed to the protection and the flourishing of human life, to the commonwealth, to the well-being of all of God's created human beings. In the end, I do, I myself am opposed to abortion, but in the end, I do understand that people are saying, we're talking about a few days old, or we're required to treat this as a human being, and so forth. Uh, it is it's a, it is a difficult question. Mm-hmm. Um, one other di- similarity or difference there is that uh, it's for sure that uh, preborn children have not committed crimes. And we know that a lot of people who actually go to death row, uh, even some self-confessed uh, to horrible crimes. So there is a, a difference at that There's level a difference well. that way. I wonder, the, other, the other issue that often comes up in these kind of discussions has to do with war. Now, as I remember from some of our previous discussions, correct me if I'm wrong, you are not a pacifist like our friend Stanley Hauerwas, for example, and have on occasion seen fit to think it wise for countries in the name of justice or whatever to go to war. Why not extend your argument for mercy to countries who wage war as well as those who execute criminals? Mm. It's helpful to kind of think what our options are about war. One is the holy war idea. This is the idea that war is a positive good, that we have should have no regrets about doing this. God wants us to go and kill these people and take over or whatever. Um, this... N- this gets almost no support in the church today. The part of the church I'm a part of, no support. No one that I know of supports this. At the opposite extreme is just absolute pacifism. This is taking Jesus' teachings from the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek, going the second mile, and treating them as public policy, saying nations are required to do this. Um, if you're attacked, don't defend yourself, and so forth. Don't go to war under any circumstances. Um, I'm not sure that that, uh, I'm sure that Jesus didn't intend it as public policy. The question is whether it should be public policy or not. My sense is that it's awfully hard to see how, what, what would happen is that the more predatory people in the world would simply 
wreak continued violence against all against everybody else all the time and i'm not sure that that's a good thing and there, there certainly are things in the bible to support the idea that government has a right and, and indeed a responsibility to defend the lives and property of citizens the middle position is the just war theory the two three things to be said about it the idea is it's not a positive good uh in itself but it is often the least evil available option for you and so you go to war uh, in order to carry out the defense of the appropriate defense of people and property against an aggressor. The thing about just war is a couple of things. One is we have criteria for when you go to war. It's got to be real aggression against you and so forth, or th- real threat of aggression. And then a criteria for the conduct of just war, the principal one being don't kill civilians. That well, A couple of problems. One is <laughs> war has changed so much mm-hmm. now that more people died in the 20th century at the hands of their own governments than in wars of, of states against states. And then much of the conflict that's carried out now is something like guerrilla warfare, where civilians and and soldiers aren't clearly delineated. And it's just hard to defend against that without killing a lot of, of civilians. And, and indeed, sometimes armies hide behind civilians in civilian populations. So they put an arsenal right next door to a hospital or something like that. Yeah. So, so the conduct of just war gets more and more difficult as, as, as the way we conduct war gets changed. That's the first thing. The second thing is <laughs> it, it looks like there are a whole lot less just wars than some people have assumed. The one that ke- people keep in mind is World War II. No question about our being up against a terrible, terrible enemy, Hitler and Nazism and fascism, and no question about what would have happened had we not gone to war because we saw what was happening with Jews and homosexuals and gypsies and and other ethnic groups that Hitler opposed and so forth. And so it's hard not to think of that as a just war, to say, well, it was a horrible thing, but it sure was good that we stopped. And I think, I think anybody would say, almost anybody would have to say, yes, we're really grateful that that was, that that was stopped. So I guess I would say that in my heart, I'd love to make the Jesus teaching about personal morality, about turning the other cheek, public policy. But in my mind, I can't see that we ought to do that in an absolutist way. I would just say, let's be a lot more careful about deciding which wars are just and which ones aren't than we, than we are being nowadays. If we really had just wars today, we'd have a lot fewer wars. Well, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you if you would say a little bit about your own kind of personal involvement in this issue. You're obviously a thinker and a theologian. You've thought about this. Uh, but you also are involved in uh, particularly the struggle against the death penalty here in our state of Alabama, perhaps elsewhere. So maybe a two-part question. One, we've talked about how this is in some ways a legal issue. What can Christians who are convicted as you are that the death penalty and capital punishment is wrong and should be opposed, what can they do at the legislative lobbying level to make their voice heard and known. And then the second question, I'd like for you to say a little bit about your own personal involvement in a support group that really is concerned about the ethics of capital punishment. Carolyn and I belong to a small informal group that meets about once a month here in Birmingham. There are just about a dozen of us, and others include your friends and mine, Jim and uh, Shelley Douglas. We conduct vigils on execution days. Fortunately, we've only had one of those days in the last couple of years here in our state on execution days in Alabama. And we have a newsletter, and I'd be happy to send that newsletter to anybody who'd like to receive it. So just tell us how how they could get in touch. My email address is fisherhumphreys at 
gmail.com. Um, there are large groups that oppose um, the death penalty effectively. Amnesty is one of these. Their website is full of information. Um, uh, here in the United States, um, for worldwide information, Amnesty is best. In the United States, there's an awful lot of additional information at the Death Penalty Information Center. It's uh, The web address is deathpenaltyinfo.org. Um, there are an awful lot of books that people can read. I, I read, I like novels. Three of our great novelists have written wonderful books about this. Um, uh, all of them are lawyers. John Grisham's book is called The Confession. Scott DeRoe's book is called Reversible Errors. And Richard North Patterson's book is called Conviction. Scott DeRoe um, gave important testimony in 2011 in Illinois that helped uh, the legislature make its decision uh, to outlaw the death penalty in that state. Um, those books are helpful. I think that more of my friends have been influenced probably by Sister Helen Prejean's book, Dead, Dead Man Walking, than perhaps anything else, and the movie with um, Sean Penn. It is the story about a man on death row uh, in Louisiana, and Sister Helen uh, ministered to him and walked with him all the way to the end of his life. It's um, very dramatic, and she's a wonderful spokesperson for abolition of the death penalty. There are musicians who have opposed it. Johnny Cash has a heart-rending story called 25 Minutes to Go. And there are um, the churches make stands against it as well. Um, there are just two brief paragraphs about this in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and they are wonderful. Um, the, they begin by simply saying that government is responsible to protect citizens' lives, and then they say very simply, if bloodless means are sufficient to defend human lives against an aggressor and to protect public order and the safety of persons, public authority should limit itself to such means. Don't, don't take a life if you don't have to, and we don't in a developed society. Some mainland churches are more absolutist about this. Uh, for example, the United Methodist Church says unequivocally, we are opposed, don't ever do this, not under any circumstances. So there, uh, there's lot, there are a lot of resources out there for people who are interested in the subject, want to learn about it, and and want to find out what their arguments look like and so on. You and I are Baptists. Is there a Baptist position on the death penalty? Not to my knowledge. I, it's awfully hard to get a Baptist <laughs> position on much of anything except well, Jesus and the gospel. <laughs> but <laughs> the, you've been arguing that these are kind of related. <laughs> uh, well, that's true, yes. No, a Baptist uh, polity doesn't allow us to really adopt official positions about an awful lot of things, but certainly the majority of Baptists, you can you can determine where the majority of Baptists are on, on something like this. And here in America, at least, the majority certainly support the death penalty. Well, at the very least, you know, without resolving all of these issues, the pro and con on the capital punishment, surely we can appeal to all of our listeners to be very concerned about the abuse of the death penalty, about placing restrictions on the taking of human life where questions are in doubt. And also, we haven't talked about this on the podcast, the equitability of the application of the death penalty across all kinds of racial, socioeconomic levels, which is another, I think, argument that's often uh, mentioned. Uh, my friend Chuck Colson, you mentioned, actually changed his view on the death penalty. He was opposed to it for a long period of his life. Near the end of his life, he visited John Wayne Gacy, a horrible murderer, self-confessed murderer, and 
after that encounter with him, he came to recognize pretty much what the Catholic Catechism says. There may be some cases where there is nothing else that can be done. And in such a case, uh, we can't be absolutely opposed to the death penalty. But overwhelmingly, he recognized the injustice of how the death penalty was applied in this country. And uh, at least we can appeal, I think, to folks at that level to be engaged with the issue. That is an important argument, and um, I have permission to tell this story. I was at Mountain Brook Baptist Church here in Birmingham one Wednesday night to speak, and Governor Brewer, Albert Brewer, came and sat by me while we were having supper before the program. And uh, he, he said, Fisher, you're welcome to tell this story. And I don't know how the subject of the death penalty came up, but his first response was, it is cannot be done justly. It, this race and class, money, all of this has uh, a lot to do with who gets sent. No, no rich people on death row. It was who gets sentenced to death and so forth. So that was the number one concern for him. That as an attorney and former governor, that you just can't administer this thing uh, justly. That's the position also of that group I mentioned earlier, the American Law Institute, which drew up the model law for death. A death penalty law for that states have uh, used as a pattern, um, they have withdrawn their support. They have said, we were mistaken. This this should not be done. It is not being administered justly, and it ought to be dropped. And, and they have said, we no longer support it at all, the group that gave us the pattern law. And so I think a lot of people are very impressed by that argument, and I, and I am, of course, as well. The majority, some, I think I saw a figure recently of about 80% of the murders committed in this country where people are found guilty of murder and then given the death penalty, about 80% of them are against murders of white people. The The chance of getting the death penalty if you have murdered a, a person of color is m- much reduced. That's just obviously not, not equitable justice. It's an important argument. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Professor Fisher Humphreys. Thank you, Fisher, for joining us today and for this conversation. Thank you, Dr. George. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.